In these uncertain times, it can be hard to make sense of everything that is happening across the world today. This is why the registry continues to bring its grounded and informed news coverage of everything real estate, to keep you informed and better prepared to meet the challenges of the industry. We are able to deliver the reliable news you trust because of generous readers who support our work. Thank you to your commitment to journalism, especially now. And if you're not a subscriber yet, you can join us at theregistrysf.com in San Francisco and theregistryps.com in Seattle. Alan Colinette is a great friend of the registry and someone with whom we have been collaborating for many years in his capacity as a commercial real estate industry leader. Over the past decade, as a managing director of Collier's, leading the firm's efforts across Northern California, Alan created and led a rapid expansion strategy for Collier's brokerage operations in San Francisco by recruiting top brokerage teams in the region. He added new service offerings, including multifamily investment sales, institutional debt and equity capabilities, and high-end specialty urban retail services. Allen also helped launch an Asia-Pacific division dedicated to sourcing opportunities for foreign direct investment. As a result, revenues increased 15-fold over a 10-year period. Welcome, Allen, to our podcast. People come to the San Francisco Bay Area for many reasons, a spectacular natural setting, a sophisticated lifestyle, and unique professional opportunities. Those seeking these qualities will find all that and more at Hacienda, where you can work, live, and grow. A Hacienda location means having the best of everything with an easy reach, whether it's world-class restaurants, theater, and museums, the best learning institutions in the country, or some of the finest services available. That particularly applies to businesses wanting the best address to have easy access to needed resources, being among other industry leaders and knowing that you are part of a region that leads the world in innovation. The result? An unbeatable combination that leads to success. And that is what you will find at Hacienda. Find out more by visiting Hacienda on the web at www.hacienda.org. Alan, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm great. Thank you. Where do we find you this morning, Alan? Where are you? I'm sheltering in place on the uh, the creek in Larkspur, which is about 16 miles north of San Francisco. Sounds sounds lovely. Sounds like uh, sounds like a place a lot of people would like to shelter in place, <laughs> if that's possible. Yeah, it's a long term, unexpected sort of semi-vacations. So. Yeah, great. Um, Alan, so by way of introduction, um, would you mind giving us a little bit of an overview of, you know, who you are, your background in the industry, uh, just something to kind of, you know, bite our, bite our teeth into for the, for the audience? Uh, sure, Vlad. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> I'm an independent commercial real estate consultant and, <clears throat> and speaker, and I'm focused on advising owners and occupiers on uh, really all aspects of commercial real estate, including apartment, retail, office, and industrial sectors. Um, and I think it's important to know in the context of this interview that I'm not compensated based on transactions, so I can maintain true independence as distinct from the commission-based brokerage, um, where you're a lot more cautious because you don't want to offend or um, give advice or comments that is at odds with what your clients would like to hear. And so to that end, I left Collier's International in 
January of this year, having been executive regional managing director, and I was based in San Francisco, <clears throat> and I grew revenues in the city of San Francisco from uh, you know single digits to um, high um, double digits in 10 years. And during that time, I recruited 35 agents, established you know several uh, divisions uh, which focused on everything from landlords, landlord-based uh, um, advice all the way through to multifamily, retail, institutional sales. And um, uh, one of the major things that I established uh, around somebody called Young Chen was the Asia-Pacific division, uh, US-based, Mandarin-speaking, strong political connections throughout Asia. Uh, so that's that's my brief history. Um, and as not as an aside, but a key part of what I'm what I've done or been doing is working hard as an advocate for women in the commercial real estate business because um, it's both. I speak both on the topics of commercial real estate and also the advancement of women in the industry. And my my guess or educated guess is that brokerage leading leading people in brokerage have it's maybe five to eight percent women, rest male. So there's a lot of work to do on that. Yeah, 100%. And thank you for bringing that up, actually, because um, the registry through its partnership with uh, Crew, San Francisco, and Silicon Valley and East Bay um, with our organization of Elevate has actually recognized your efforts in, in, in that space. And this is not meant to be a marketing <laughs> sort of pitch for, for that, but I, but I, um, you know, do, do thank you for bringing that up. I, I think that that's very important because I think you and I know that this industry is not, um, terribly diverse and, and I think it's getting better, but, but certainly it, it, we, we can do better. Um, and so that's, well, that's thanks. Pretty. Thanks, Vlad. It was a humbling and a, and a true honor to win the, the, the awards for over those three years. And I've just briefly, I've got to acknowledge that I'm a spectator in a game that I can only pretend to understand when it comes from my, uh, my knowledge of what it would be like to be a woman entering this business. So yeah. I think male, male advocates are key, uh, but we have to l listen. Uh, we have two ears and one mouth, and there's a reason for that ra ratio. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so, Alan, y y you don't have a British accent just because you went to the British school in San Francisco and you're, you're, you're an Anglophile. <laughs> uh, tell us a little bit about sort of your, your journey from, you know, the UK to, to North America and kind of how you landed in uh, San Francisco. Well, yeah, and the accent, you know, we've been trying to teach y you all to to speak English since, uh, I don't know, the 1700s, 1800s. But uh, now I've, I think I've got to learn to speak American after after 35 years here. Um, yeah, so I was I was raised in England as a what they called a chartered surveyor. So uh, educated in um, in all aspects of real estate, including valuation and, you know, um, economics and law and so on so i know enough to be dangerous and over there it's um it's perceived to be more of a profession than a transactional business it's more advisory um but it's been very exciting to be part of this incredible um country um and so i've learned a lot and it's been a wonderfully uh wonderfully open to new ideas and the ability to grow your business yeah. So as a, as a participant in this industry, this this crisis is obviously not your you know, first rodeo, so to speak. Um, 
which is which is a term for an event in the U.S. Allen where people gather and kind of you know try to tame horses and oxen. I don't know if you, that's a <laughs> well, yeah, and they the, fall, fall under the horse and, and then get they fall. Right, that's right. Yeah, that's right. right. Anyway, I'll 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 stop with the with the jokes. But um, but you've been you've been in the industry for for a while now. Tell us, you know, how does this one compare to some of the you know previous ones that you've seen? Well, in terms of cycles, if that's where we're headed, um, this time it, I think it really is different in many ways. Um, and if you read the studies, you had um, a big pandemic in the 50s. You had another one in the uh, 70s. You had SARS. And then, of course, you had the Great, Depre- uh, Great Recession. But if you look at all of those, real estate lagged in terms of uh, how it was affected. Um, even in the financial crisis when real estate got hit hard. Uh, this time around, real estate got hit uh, simultaneously and dramatically. And so my educated belief is that this is very different for real estate. And part of it is how instantly it collapsed. Uh, prior cycles, you know, we've had a 10-year run in San Francisco and really nationally of unmitigated, unstoppable growth in real estate, in rents, values, uh, occupancies, and so on. So just jumping into some figures, um, within 60 days, um, we went from Class A rents at $90 a square foot for good space, ahead of New York for the first time in history, number one in the US and worldwide, we were number, this is San Francisco office rents, number six behind Hong Kong, Beijing, London, Tokyo, and New Delhi. Class A top buildings like Salesforce Tower hit $130 a square foot, plus taxes and operating expenses passed through from landlords. Yeah. And in addition to that, the city felt confident and started passing hard-hitting laws like the homeless tax, childcare tax that were all passed on basically to tenants. And uh, lastly, on kind of where, where we were, subly space was just 0.9% a record of the 90 million square feet inventory. And that was compared to, um, you know, direct lease space of four and a half percent. And not to be not to be too statistical, but this is all so dramatic. So in 2002, right after the dot com boom, sublease space was actually 30 percent of the vacancy rate and um, vacancy was at 16 percent of the whole market. So huge difference between then and now. And now back to or then and, you know, January of uh, 2020, the poll of the industry leaders at the beginning of this year showed a peak in 18 months. Uh, rents were predicted to flatten slightly. Demand of space was going to be, you know, continue to, um, you know, to increase. And venture capital was still rocking at 59% of the U.S. total. But, you know, slight clouds on the horizon, uh, Retail was just starting to struggle. Um, Union Square, high-end malls, um, and apartment sales in San Francisco were hit with three pretty crazy government uh, laws that made their theoretical value evaporate. Yeah, but demand was still still you know very strong. Yeah, and it's and it's and it's worthwhile mentioning. And I think you touched upon this a little bit. How sort of drastic the the market has you know really kind of gone from you know the the 2000 kind of recession right the dot com bust to where we were in 2000 you know 2019 um 
I mean, just market difference in terms of, you know, what San Francisco meant, not just in the region, but also globally, right? I mean, this, this, yes. this was... This was the epicenter. It is still, I mean, I would argue, of you know technology innovation and you know the the, the you know companies that exist in the Bay Area have really transformed that city into something that that, that hasn't been seen. Right? I mean, is that is that accurate? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I always think of I have to pinch myself because um, you know San Francisco was literally the epicenter of the knowledge based economy in the same way that. Um, London was the center of the Industrial Revolution, um, and then Florence was the center of the Renaissance. So we were literally in the city uh, that was leading the world economy. And um, that's, I think, one of the main reasons why San Francisco has been hit so viciously in the last 60 days, because all of a sudden you see the undermining, and this was simultaneous, but Companies like WeWork and Uber were already starting to wobble. And now this has just uh, nailed it to the point where, you know, San Francisco is going to be questioned, at least as a place to invest. You've got people like Tesla looking to move to uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, where the the mayor's built this giant statue out of plaster of Paris of Elon Musk. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So... But, you know, part of it, Vlad, is that, and I hate to use the word communist, but I think what what happens is you get a tremendous economy, and this is known worldwide, and then you start to get these extraordinary measures brought in by local and state governments, which are basically taxing the very goose that's laying their golden egg and that's paying their salaries and so on. And so what you end up with is these kind of laws that come in. So we're talking with, uh, there's now, um, well, let's see, you know, you've got uh, various um, laws that have been brought in. So, for example, Tesla's looking at Tulsa. Um, You had a San Francisco Superior Court judge upholding the initiative to raise commercial lease taxes to fund early childhood education. Then there was a, a gross receipts tax on companies that earned more than fifty million to support homeless services. Yeah, and now you've got the <laughs> the overpaid executive tax, and it basically means that executives that have salaries that are multiples of their lowest paid employee end up getting the the company gets nailed with this massive tax. So all of a sudden you've got um, a whole group of tenants that um, occupiers that that are looking at. Um, you know, moving, moving from San Francisco uh, completely out. So, you know, just some examples would be Jewel, you know, PG&E, Airbnb, Uber, Mapbox, you know, Google, Twitter, Pinterest, Notel, WeWork, Samsara, Flexport, you know, Salesforce, uh, I could go on. And so demand here has suddenly gone from 6 million square feet to about 2 million but sublease space has jumped by 1 million square feet a month, which which basically translates into the office market going into reverse immediately. And that's never been seen before. And uh, so we, I've got some predictions we could make, but uh, it's really it's really stunning. Yeah, and I recall vividly, you know, the discussions that I've had with people throughout the industry over the last decade, essentially. And um, I think, you know, you know, people that you and I know very well, 
the point that you made earlier, you know, this this time it's really <laughs> different. That's kind of like the, you know, one of the things you never say in real estate, right? Um, but, you know, people were very hopeful that technology would be something that's going to be enduring and it's going to, you know, carry the region out of whatever the next sort of downturn might be. And, you know, here we are. Yet we're seeing, you know, the effects of some legislation, you know, local, regional, you know, um, really potentially having an impact on 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 that. Do you, do you anticipate some of this passing? I mean, you know, Scott Weiner's uh, SB nine three nine law did did not go through, so that was that was defeated. But certainly there are a couple more coming up in the November ballot. Do do you see the industry kind of galvanizing behind some of these things? because it is important? Uh, yes, I do. I think that the, you know, historically the, um, you know, the, the corporate um, tenant, you know, an owner backlash against some of these um, initiatives is able to defeat some of them. But, uh, you know, one of the main ones was actually backed heavily by Salesforce, and which ironically was the tax on the... Um, you know, companies that do over 50 million a year because um, it was related to homeless, which, yeah. you know, directly affects employee satisfaction. Yeah, You know, ironically, Vlad, and we'll talk about this maybe a bit later, but I think it's it's probable that tech in its own way will completely change the, the value of real estate advisory um, and particularly brokerage, which is the industry I came from, because all of a sudden, knowledge is absolutely critical. That's real-time knowledge. That's, you know, being able to make instant decisions across, you know, literally a portfolio of hundreds or maybe thousands of, um, you know, of properties. So what you have is you have, you know, you've got companies like JLL who just brought on a guy called Avi Learn, um, Yishai Lerner. And he was the one who sold his company to Google for billions of dollars um and he is an expert on data as you can imagine and so you know what i mean with that is that uh he um he and now um yao morin who she was head of stubhub's data and engineering they're now part of a brokerage company and so what they're trying to do is show that you can digitize customer expect experience like you know virtual communities studying force majeure in leases, you know, what kind of a force majeure clause do you have in leases across your portfolio? And that can only be done by digitizing a portfolio. You know, and that used to be called act of God, So, for those who don't know force majeure. Sure. Um, but because of religious discrimination, you know, some leases now say force majeure instead. Then liability, you know, how do they translate, um, you know, the knowledge of what what the liability issues are without having clear research across the country as to what law firms are law firms are saying you know is it the landlord is it the tenant is it is it the property manager who's liable for an outbreak of coronavirus in a in a building and then you know the digital concierge this again is tech so lease payments landlords and tenants need to make thousands of decisions you know across their portfolios uh, to do with creditworthiness, releaseability, legal costs, lender requirements, and you can only do that if you digitize the portfolio. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so that's tech solving some of the real estate problems that we currently have. 
Great. Um, so, Alan, one of the things, and we'll get into into the discussion about kind of what uh, you know future of the brokerage industry is. I, I do want to talk about that for sure. But now that you've kind of effectively left the industry, I, you know, I would, I would, and not left the industry, but you've you've left your role as you know the you know managing director and kind of running Colliers in the in the Bay Area, hoping you can now give us sort of a, a you know an, an an unscripted kind of perspective on how the industry is doing. Tell us a little bit about kind of what what you're seeing out there and kind of from your understanding of where where things are. Like you know, uh, uh, let's let's focus a little bit on sort of how. I guess bad it is, and then we'll focus on the positive in terms of what what good that that can also mean for the industry. Um, yeah, thank you, Vlad. Yes, just so the brokerage industry, um, and I won't mention names of companies for obvious reasons, but the big ones uh, are affected as much as the small ones. Um, and so, what's going on is massive layoffs of salaried employees. Uh, non-performing brokers, which means brokers that don't generate much in the way of uh, commission revenues uh, are being eliminated. And um, a lot of these companies have massive debt. Um, I mean, there is one that's all over the papers, which is Compass. And Compass is, you know, specializes in, you know, apartment sales mostly. Um, They're an agglomeration of a lot of different brokerage firms that they bought. And the interesting part about that is they were backed by a huge investment from SoftBank, who you'll know from the big the big blunders they made with um, you know with WeWork and others. So um, the, the deal there is they're really struggling on the debt. You know, the, the CEO is not taking a salary, and um, they are trying to consolidate their locations. Um, and if you look across at uh, you know, tenant representation, so we call it occupier services, but advice to the big companies like, you know, whether it's LinkedIn, Airbnb, you know, Facebook, Google, etc. Um, the brokerage companies that handle that business have seen a drop off of uh, 85% uh, almost immediately in the commission dollars they're generating. And foot traffic has dropped by 78% in San Francisco, meaning, you know, showings of office space. And so you can imagine what that does to the net revenues on brokerage, which is always thin, uh, always thin, because average 70% of every dollar generated goes back out to the individual brokers who are independent contractors. So it's a huge, huge disruption. And um, at the same time, if you're in a – I don't mean to ramble here, but at the same time, if you're – in a client, you know, face contact uh, transaction type business, uh, trying to work from home, and generate a network with you know potential new clients is is impossible. Can't be done. So that's um, that's f- fairly drastic, Alan. Right? I mean, I think if you say that uh, you know margins in the industry are thin to begin with, and then all of a sudden, you know, three four months, your volume is down by eighty percent. Um, you know, can can they recover <laughs> for the rest of the year? Uh, likely not, given sort of where things are. So, what what do you think that? You know, means for the industry. Um, we've seen this happen before in terms of um, you know other other times and other sort of cycles like these where there is consolidation. You know, and there's uh, is is that what what ends up happening? Um, or like you mentioned a little bit earlier, new services, new product offerings. You know, how does the industry then uh, shift? Um, that, that's a really good question. 
uh, Vlad, and obviously I've given it um, a, a lot of thought, particularly since I've moved away from a commission-based um, business. I think leading the, leading it is JLL, and they actually had a uh, they've got a magnificent model because what they did uh, is uh, they they bought um you know LaSalle. This was a long time ago, but LaSalle were basically a consultant. Uh, like, let's say, um, you know, Deloitte or, or Pricewaterhouse or McKinsey. And so they combine the two. So they have a lot of what they call recurring revenue, which yeah. includes a lot of advice, which isn't paid for by commissions. It's paid for by, you know, consulting contracts. And so more and more, uh, you know, the major companies are not looking for people that are paid because they do transactions. And so I think you'll see firms at least attempt to transition a lot more to consulting based um you know based business as opposed to transaction based um things like advising tenants on how to come out of this uh, covid um uh, covid um you know nightmare sure. um and and giving them a sense of trust and safety and how do you do that well you 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 do that by and i was listening to the head of boston properties talking about this but you give them a sense of trust, not by um, not by just telling them that everything's going to be great, or having limited knowledge as a typical, with great respect, broker might have. But you 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 uh, uh, you take data and you analyze, um, you know, the the psychological and social impacts on on your employees, and then you hold their hand by um, communicating, you know, real time about things like how do they. Um, how do they get into the office? You know, elevators. Um, you know, advising management companies about liability. You know that. Um, you know, you really do have a struggle between liability for the different. Um, you know, for the different uh, stakeholders: landlords, tenants, um, uh, management companies. And so, obviously, in addition to that, there's a lot of talk about reconfiguring office space. And this is again where consulting comes in. And so brokers, in a lot of ways, end up transitioning to be more like designers or architects. So they'll partner with them on a consulting basis. And so just to just to finish that thought, leading up to this COVID disaster, you had a lot of open workspace. There was a big move to from the big private offices to open workspaces. And of course, now with COVID, you can't do that. So how do you completely reconfigure office space so it's user-friendly? Right. So. Yeah. You, that's something where you know again the the brokers need to be much more like advocates and consultants yeah and we saw a little bit of that and there are some kind of you know you know you know boutique tenant rep brokerages that have already sort of began to enter into that space but you're you're saying from your observation you're going to see more of that and you mentioned jll as one sort of great example but i, I imagine you know companies like you know cbre and Cushman likely would then enter into that space too, is what you're saying. Well, yeah, exactly, yeah, and certainly CBRE have already made uh, great strides. Um, there's actually back to women in brokers. There's a, there's a fantastic um, a broker called Jenny Haig in San Francisco who now works for CBRE. They bought her company, but her major uh, major talent is giving exactly this kind of advice, um, and so she's well ahead of the game. But it actually translates into what what do boutiques do? You know, the small businesses that are in the brokerage, you know, real estate brokerage industry disappear because they're too small to 
you know, be hired by a major corporation? And I think actually the answer to that is no. But what they have to do is become known for one thing and one thing only. And whatever that thing is, say it's a, a retail boutique brokerage, they have to become known as the specialist in translating you know, the, the really troubled retail landlords and tenants from where they are now to understanding the transition from retail to, let's call it industrial or dis- distribution. And as you, you probably know, Vlad, that's a, that's a defensive mechanism, you know, against e-commerce. But if you look at, you know, the acquisition by Amazon of JCPenney, you know, why did they do it? They didn't do it to sell more, you know, more knickknacks from a department store. They did it because they're going to transition uh, the 872 pennies locations across the country into combination of what they call experiential retail, which is, you know, the consumer can come in and touch and feel what they're going to buy, but also distribution centers for real-time distribution within two hours to a consumer who's just seen the, seen the good. And so that's where the boutique brokerage uh, in retail, for example, could come in. Come, could come in. And actually a real real expert, just, just finishing that, is somebody called Julie Taylor, who is already um, well ahead of the game in advising major corporations, you know, owners and tenants on, on this transition. Yeah, and we had the opportunity to actually speak with Julie. So she's in, uh, in one of our uh, podcast interviews already. So thank you for bringing that, that up. Yeah, it's, it is interesting. And, and that's kind of where, where I was going to go next in terms of where do then smaller, very purpose-built companies and boutique kind of firms fit then, right? And it looks like from your understanding, there is some hope, but you better be kind of really, really good at something, right? And kind of do that one thing. As you look at this cycle and um, us coming out of it, you know, what, what, are, you, what are you hopeful about? You know, wh- where do you think the industry is, is going to go? Well, that's, a, that's a, obviously the, the $64 billion <laughs> <Right>. question <laughs> based, based on the loss of value of some of the major companies. Like, for example, uh, WeWork. And actually, uh, talking about WeWork, I think that's a good – you've just given me a good seg- segue into the future of um, – co-working and so is that going to really gain and increase because of this and be the future or is it in fact the opposite and it's a great debate i don't have the answer but it's possible that co-working could disappear altogether and not because it's a bad solution and i'll get to that in a second but because uh, you've got a company like we work not to pick on them but they were worth 49 billion before their IPO in 2018. In theory, they pulled the IPO, but the theory was that it would be worth 100 billion uh, after the IPO. And now they're worth 2.9 billion. And uh, SoftBank, who's their big backer, had uh, inserted um, about 18 billion uh, over the last uh, nine months. As recently as December, they gave them another $5 billion. So you could call it good money after bad. So not wishing them ill, but you've got companies, and there are a lot of them like that, who just can't sustain the, um, you know, the, the burn rate on the capital they've, they've spent. Yeah. But the, the, the groups like um, Regency have been in this game for, you know, they've, they've weathered three or four recessions. And so just finishing off this, this thought, because I think these, these ones that aren't debt-ridden could be the future. So the deal is there that um, if you're a, if you're a, uh, let's say a flexible 
month to month or short term lease co working space um, that can adapt because it has the money to to have um, spaces where you've got social distancing and, and so forth. I think a lot, lot, a lot of companies are really considering their real estate. They have to right now and the cost of it. And having a situation where employees can show up for work when they feel like it. And 47% of all employees are now saying they would much rather work at home. This is across the nation. Uh, so they show up occasionally. Um, and then on top of that, you could have collaboration rooms that they rent uh, so that they can social distance, but, you know, have some, you know, social interaction. So that's definitely um, a possibility. So it's both sides. I think winners are going to be senior living, partly for demographics. Um, and now the scare of, you know, the coronavirus will, will you know, add, add to that. Yeah. Um, companies like Al- Alexandria Real Estate, who REIT that, you know, focuses almost entirely on biotech, uh, there's a huge growth, as you can imagine, on biotech, which had started well before this. But things like, you know, gene splicing and uh, virus chasing and that kind of stuff, which I can't pretend to understand. Then consultants who specialize in things like HVAC yeah. and elevators. Yeah. You can imagine because HVAC in, in buildings, air conditioning and heating, has to be changed completely because it has to adapt to the transmission of viruses. Um electric cars. So it's not all bad. And I think in the real estate industry specifically, you might, this this will date me, but back in the 89 to 95 era, there was a company called, the was a government-sponsored company called the Resolution Trust Corporation. And it's now defunct. It was a federal agency. But what they did was they sold foreclosed on assets of failed savings and loans and banks. And so the opportunity in real estate was people like Sam Zell, who, you know, is famous for equity office. But sure. but he called him he called himself the grave dancer, because his thing was to go in and buy at cents on the dollars um, major assets and then you know resell them later. But that was a three hundred and ninety four billion uh, loss of loss of real estate wealth uh, over seven hundred and forty seven <laughs> failed financial institutions. Yeah. But guess who made out? the the people that were smart enough to come in and buy at the bottom. Yeah, so so I think I think I think what you're saying is there will be a bottom here and there will be opportunities and I think one of the lessons learned from what you're saying is also, you know, flexibility and don't have any debt. That's kind of <laughs> what I'm what I'm uh, what I'm getting at. Yeah, I think I think banks are going to be very hard hit and uh, it's it's um because you, know, you mentioned debt and you know, what you're seeing Vlad back to where this is going to go is, you know, there's, there are lawsuits now um, where you've got people like um, Brookfield and, and Simon Properties suing tenants, big ones like, you know, Old Navy, who are not paying rent. And then, of course, when they're not paying rent, guess what happens to the mortgage? You know, it doesn't get paid. Right. And then guess what's happened to the bank that's lent the mortgage? So a, a lot of it's putting pressure on the banks, the banking system. And I don't I don't know where that ends, but I think you're going to see opportunities in the banking industry, but probably a lot more government regulation. Yeah, yeah. So as you look at, you know, somebody trying to enter the industry today or next year, maybe when people start to hire again, what would be some of the advice that you would give someone? How do you think the industry needs to transform to attract somebody 
to enter the industry? I think that's another very important question because some of the, some of the things that I've seen is that people do tend to go elsewhere, and uh, there is a little bit of a notion that this industry um, has lost a generation of people. I think, and 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 I'd, I'd love to sort of hear your 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 perspective on on that. So so it's a two sided question, if you will. It's a it's a very good and thought provoking one. Um, so. Just just a little bit of history. You mentioned sort of the lost generation to real estate, and really we're talking about real estate brokerage mostly, but also um, you know working in in real estate in some capacity as a as a principal. So the the, re- the reason it's it was very hard to recruit university educated, hopefully you know smart individuals who are kind and have a lot of integrity into real estate is obviously tech. Uh, it was so attractive, um, you know, being employee number 27 and having the, it's like winning the lottery. And, and you know, when you're particularly young, um, you know, winning the lottery seems much more likely <laughs> than <laughs> when you get be- beaten up by several thousand, you know, um, uh, you know, poor, poor pieces of judgment. Anyway, so that that made it hard. So advice now would be, First of all, if you if it's not too late, get a really good specialized education and get an education that enables you to be valuable to an advisory company as opposed to just being a broker. That doesn't doesn't mean brokerage is gone. And brokerage is often a good launching pad for moving on to something else. Um, but I think, you know, I think make yourself employable. And I think the other piece of advice is. Uh, you know, we've gone from the safest job in the world to be working as a salaried employee for IBM to the safest job in the world being a, an entrepreneur at a tech company and also as a commission-based broker. And now we're back to safety again, where people are just shocked, scared, uh, particularly people who are trying to build a career. I mean, imagine coming out of university at this point. So the advice is get a really good education, specialized if you like real estate, then specialize in learning um, how data affects real estate, learn about, you know, demographics, learn about, you know, the things like the change from retail to, uh, you know, to um, industrial, you know, learn about the, the trends uh, before you even show up for an interview. And there'll be a lot of you, a lot of you, and you have to differentiate yourself by have a, having a label. The label isn't just I'm honest and and I have integrity, <laughs> because the opposite of that is you're dishonest and lazy, <laughs> which um, is a pretty low bar. Yeah. Um, I'm sort of joking, but everybody says that in an interview. But no, it's I, I specialize in um, you know data recovery for major companies, uh, you know, and cybersecurity or whatever it might be, some tangential thing towards towards real estate. Yeah. And then conversely, how does the industry need to change to attract more talent? Uh, yeah, that's a that's another good question. And I think it, it's really just the flip side of, of what I said. If they transition towards something that provides more stability and less risk, i.e. I, not huge paydays for transactions, but more modest paydays for being more like a, you know, a Pricewaterhouse, Deloitte, um, McKinsey type of uh, consultant, um, you know, JLL is well on the way to being that, you know, then then that's how a company would adapt to attract those types of employees. And I don't think it's about, you know, five-star restaurants and penthouse suites and, 
concierges for your, you know, your pets, uh, you know, and billiard tables, you know, on three floors and and sleeping pods. I, I think those are gimmicks that used to attract people. But I think today, you know, two things, right? One, that generation, which isn't me, is so used to them, it's kind of old hat. And number two, um, they're much more interested in stability than glitz, I think. Yeah. Alan, it's been a pleasure connecting again. Uh, stay well, and we'll be in touch. Same to you, Vlad. It's an honor to, uh, to be on this, so thank you. 